Oi, budge. In this episode of Budge, How to Fudge Being Human, we talked to former politician and premier Rob Borbidge to get a behind the scenes view on how our political system really works and why we allow human history to repeat itself through the rise of political polarization. We hope you love this episode as much as we do and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you're listening. We have this view of humans that it's also negative, that we're, we're, we're naturally bad, but actually that's not true. Most humans are actually naturally good and, and want to do good things. And, and it's actually really pleasing to hear you say that you found the vast majority of politicians think that way. I think there's a massive irony that um, this rise of the populist, such as Trump, and seen in some European countries, is uh, seen as a bad thing. Whereas it's always been almost a popularity contest. That's what democracy is, it's people that are popular with you. I think if you go into politics, everyone has a use-by date. And when you're elected to government, you have X amount of goodwill that, that goes with being elected. You've got to use that goodwill on the fights that matter not the fights that don't. Welcome to Budge, How to Fudge Being Human, uh, the podcast that helps you be better at being human, as always. As always. <laughs> joined by Dr. Derek Oppen. How are you, mate? It's like you're resigned to it. It's like a bad smell. Hello. Yes, I'm, I'm delighted to be here, Paul. And, and we are, you're more delighted than that to, to have Rob Borbidge with us, uh, former Premier of Queensland, uh, probably missing Right Honourable and OAM. No, don't, don't worry about the rest. Yeah, and, 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 and OAM, is that right? AO. AO, sorry, mate. Yeah, yeah. That's a, a good faux pas to start with. What are with. AOs and OAMs? We had an OAM yesterday, didn't we? Yeah, the Order of Australian Medal. Okay. And Yeah, okay, so it goes uh, OAM, Medal of the Order of Australia, AM, Member of the Order of Australia, AO, Officer of the Order of Australia. Which, which is yourself. Yeah, and then AC, Companion of the Order of Australia, and there are the odd AKs, which have been done away with now, which was uh, right, Knight okay. of the Order of Australia. Ah, okay. But uh, they're no longer so awarded. Be, so we'd be used to equivalents of like CBE, OBE, yeah, 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 yeah. Mate, Premier of Queensland, uh, former Premier of Queensland, we, we, we have a big following in the US and the UK and uh, probably Canada a little bit as well. India. India, we do actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, for, for those people that are not familiar with Australia, what... what What's, what's the equivalent of a premier? Well, uh, a premier uh, in Australia would be similar to, say, a, a premier in, in, in Canada yep. uh, and a premier or a chief minister in, in some other parts of the world. In the US, which has a, a different system of government, uh, the closest role would be that of governor, although yeah. it's, it's slightly different, but yeah. near enough. And, and being a Welshman, I was thinking, um, since, since I've been over here, they've got the Welsh... Assembly. First first minister. First minister, yeah. yeah That's yeah, what I was thinking. Yeah, it's equivalent yeah. to the first minister. Yep. Yep. Thank you, mate, for doing this today. And, and, and obviously a conversation uh, we're really excited to have with you is around the, the polarization of politics. Um and potentially some of why we've seen the growth in not just polarization, but this conspiracy thinking as well. And, and Darren will try and explain uh, why people think in that way sometimes. But with, with all due respect, sir, you've you've been in politics a while, or you were in politics a while. What you're seeing now over the last few years in terms of polarisation, is this extraordinary? Is this different to what you've experienced before? It happens periodically yeah. uh, when people feel that they've been disenfranchised or they're left out or they're suffering financially or governments don't care about them or governments make decisions that they really don't like. Uh, that's when historically you get... I guess, extremist elements within the community that capitalise on basically good people feeling very frustrated with the, the process. So it, it comes and goes, it ebbs and flows. 
uh, depending on a whole lot of circumstances. And COVID, this period of COVID, we, we've seen a significant growth of it. We, we've also seen, I suppose, a big growth of it uh, in that Trump era. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be really careful today about making sure this isn't a left or a right thing, because I think we're seeing extremism on both sides. To, to what extent would you say then that COVID has uh, exacerbated or, or increased the sort of polarisation of politics? And, and do you see any relationship between Trump and polarisation? Uh, yes and yes. Yep. Um, essentially, yeah. I mean, COVID obviously hurt a lot of people. I mean, in Australia, Melbourne was the most locked down city on earth. Yeah, which is incredible really, isn't it, when you but, think about it? But despite that, the government that locked down Melbourne uh, was re-elected and not so long it. ago yeah. uh, with basically the same majority that mm. they had before. So COVID and, the, and these big issues, they, they do feed into conspiracy theories. They, they do alienate people. And certain people with aims or objectives that aren't always honourable will, will feed on them. And mm. one of the big challenges, I think, for politicians these days has been the, the incredible growth in social media, yeah. uh, you know, the Twitter sphere, um, Facebook, uh, everyone is now an expert, everyone has an opinion. And very often the decisions that you've got to take in politics, the responsible decisions that have to be taken are not always popular. Mm. and governing by the popular will of the day, which is the snapshot, if you like, a photograph of what people think at one point in time can lead to very bad government. That You know, you, you've already raised a few points there that Darren and I were really keen to talk to you about, and it's something that's come up a, a lot already in our podcast around, um, I'm trying to think of the phrase for it, Darren, where humans don't think for, we don't plan for the future. Mm. Uh, we, we always try to live in the, the now. Yeah, the present bias yep. uh, that we... That we have and the hyperbolic discounting. Hyperbolic discounting, that's what I was, sorry, that's the phrase, no wonder I didn't remember it. <laughs> to, so there's, there's a few questions that, um, that I was going to ask you around this, but to what extent do you think um, we have three-year terms in Australia, although recently on a state basis some states are moving to four-year terms, to what extent do you think we've had to, politicians are now having to respond to keep themselves in power and they're responding too acutely to this growth in social media opinion? I think to a great degree, and I think it's even worse in the US where Congress have two-year terms. Oh, wow. so, I didn't know that. I yeah, didn't realise that. Yeah, so they're, they're effectively always in, in campaign mode, yeah. and that's not conducive to uh, making decisions that are in, in the long-term interest. Uh, yeah, look, I, I generally speaking, I think three-year terms work pretty well. The trend in Australia is to, to go to four uh, I think in the UK it's five, but yeah. they normally have an election in every four. half an hour or yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> these things these things happen. Yeah. But but I also think it's important uh, in the in the political process. Uh, and I'm not a, a great believer in in fixed terms because circumstances can always arise where a government of the day may need a new mandate. Yep. It could be a pandemic, or it could be a war, uh, heaven forbid, or it could be some other terrible catastrophe where extreme measures that were never part of the political agenda uh, have to be implemented. And certainly under the Westminster system, mm. uh, there's been a, a view over the years that if that happens, then you know governments should really go to the people and say, look, this is what we're planning to do to deal with this particular issue and uh, seek a mandate. Uh, do you know, the, the other part of that for me is uh, we, we obviously went to fixed terms because it's a way of stopping political parties um, uh, manipulating. But, but then the other side of that, of course, is that we then end up political parties working and manipulating towards that four-year period anyway, sort of doing things in that last six-months period which are 
in favour of Tron. So, so I don't necessarily know if it, if it actually helps anything anyway. I don't, I don't think it does. I mm. mean, you know, politicians naturally manipulate. It's part of mm. the DNA. So uh, <laughs> That's our snapshot for, uh, for, <laughs> for, for our shorts on, on YouTube and Twitter. And, um, there's a resilience piece in there I wanted to ask you about, though, because I, I know you were sort of premier just before, you know, you, you were really the, the, the internet starting to take off. But it was before social media had really taken off. You would literally, everything you do as a politician, um, you get criticised for, right? Uh, you, you get, some people obviously support it, but you get all these people that, that don't support it. And, and we found with some of the things that we've shared on social media that people literally intentionally misconstrue some of the stuff that Darren talks about just to have a go. Um, how, that, that resilience piece, how do you cope with, with people that dislike you so intently just for being a politician or just for having a view or trying to make the world a better place? You've just got to ignore it. If, yep. if you believe you're doing the right thing, you, you keep on sailing. Mm. Uh, if people raise a legitimate concern that you haven't thought of before, then that's different. But, you know, back when, when I was in a, a leadership position in government, if uh, people had a concern, they had to come and see you, they had to make a telephone call, um, emails were, yeah, they were around, uh, but most people still corresponded by letter. Wow, where, okay. where, where, where these days it's, it's very easy for someone to put something online saying you're this or you're that yeah. and I hate you and, you know, terrible things should happen. And I think that's very much the, the downside and the negative side uh, of social media and I, I believe that to a certain extent it's undermined uh, the democratic process. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, do you think it's, you know, we, we've had this, um, dare I say, revolving door of prime ministers in Australia since John Howard. Um, do, you, do you think social media has been involved in, in that revolving door in any way? Well, social media has certainly played a role in that, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, the politicians are accountable for mm. their actions and they make a decision and, you know, very often that decision is right, sometimes it's wrong. Uh, and, look, there have been times in the past where there have been leadership changes too. So, you know... Social media has contributed to it. Is it the only culprit? No. I think that if you've got the right set of values uh, in the political process, uh, that can be minimised. And I guess one of, one of the good things about Australian politics, again, although we've had a change of government, is that we've gone back to more stable and more normal times where we're not shuffling prime ministers between elections, which I think yes. is very unhealthy. Yeah, absolutely agreed, agreed. I was just going to say something you said um, that people on social media sometimes intentionally misconstrue what you've said. Mm. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think people have something in their head about a particular subject and as soon as you raise it, um, they get it out. They don't finish listening or reading the rest of the sentence or, or whatever you're yeah, saying. Okay. They, it's just an opportunity or a trigger for them to, to get stuff out. And the the beauty and the the issue of social media is it's like the voice inside our head, and it's it's a direct thing that we can input on the keyboard. And the voice inside our head is generally negative. You know, we've got a massive negativity bias. It's negative when we when we're talking to ourselves. We're often berating ourselves. And being in a car driving, it's very similar. You're in this enclosed space. It's like a, an extension of your cranium. So you, that's why people are a lot more negative. And if people could hear what you're saying, 
um, in in the car, then you're actually a lot more polite. But with a keyboard, you just blurt out, oh, he just said something about this, so I'm just going to get off my chest what I think, and it's invariably negative. Um, and the resilience or the training to be able to put up with that um, is is hard, you know, and you don't get taught that at school, and it's not a general social skill. When we're talking to each other face-to-face, as humans have done for 300,000 years, there's a lot of politeness around, you know, just flying up here, I'm looking at everybody, and they're all looking at each other in the eyes, they're chatting, people you don't know, walking past each other, smiling at each other nodding when other people talk and and smiling at them and there's no need to nod and smile it's just you're naturally a human making other people feel feel better and putting them at ease so we're naturally a kind species but you put us the other side of the internet and we're rabid (laughs) and horrible um and and it's we're in this mismatch but it, it is leading to this increasing um, short-termism for for politicians and you know two years is the average I think ministerial position in in the UK um, so they're always looking and it's interesting that campaign mode that you're in in, in Congress is spinning things and 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 you never actually you, you quite often people have kind hearts and they, and they get into politics not because of their egotism and, um, and their megalomania, but because they feel passionately that they can do right by other humans. But then once you're in, it's like, Christ, I've got to try and keep holding my job. <laughs> and I'm going to be out in a couple of years if I, if I don't move. So what inspired you to get into politics? Was it the ego? Did you think <laughs> you could, could do something well? Was it a drive, a purpose, or the wife's idea? Yeah, basically I'd always been interested. And, and you like to think that you can make the place better. And uh, you can make a contribution. And I, I honestly believe that most people that go into politics have that view. Mm. Um, you know, and, and there's been lots of discussion uh, in Australia uh, in recent times over issues of alleged, you know, corruption and uh, politicians not doing the right thing and all the rest of it. By world standards, oh. uh, Australia doesn't have a problem. No. I mean, it, it, you know, it's... Most, the overwhelming majority of people that not only get into parliament but stand for public office in this country, in my view, are doing it because they have a belief that they can make society a better place. Mm. And uh, they're, they're good people on, on, on all sides of politics. Mm. You know, there's very few bad people uh, in the political system. You might not agree with them, you might absolutely detest their policies, but they believe in what they're doing and they believe that what they're doing will make the country a better place. It's funny, Darren and I have got interested in this. There's a book called Humankind, which does actually make the point that we, we have this view of humans that it's also negative, that we're, we're, we're naturally bad, but actually that's not true. Most humans are actually naturally good and, and want to do good things. And, and it's actually really pleasing to hear you say that politicians, um, you know, you, you found the vast majority of politicians think that way. Is it hard and different though once you get into power? to actually maintain that view? Do you, do you find you have to compromise to, to sort of, you know, like Darren says, stay in power or to suit all these different views or, or to sort of step, you know, within the party system to stay, you know, at a certain level in the party system, that sort of thing? Is it, do you find most people have to compromise? The system works fairly well, yep. you know, but, but obviously at the end of the day, uh, you know, politics is the art of compromise. Mm. And if you can get half of what you wanted to achieve rather than nothing, mm. then 
you'll try and get half because that's still an improvement on, yeah. uh, you know, where it was before. So it, it, it's it's the art of the achievable. And one of the great difficulties, I think, for uh, for members of parliament these days is that we have made government incredibly complex. Um, you know, in the old days, if you wanted to build a dam, you built a dam. Yep. Uh, where, where these days the, the process on the environmental <laughs> side, let, yep. let alone... Uh, everything else that has to be dealt with can can take years. I think we're seeing it in housing, aren't we? We see exactly, yeah. exactly. Housing, urban development, uh, law and order. Mm. Um, you know, it, we have made government overly complicated, and there's been a, a preoccupation, I think, with with process over outcomes, and we've put processes in place because, quite rightly, governments and MPs uh, have to be accountable. But if you get that out of balance or you go too far one way, mm. it can make it very difficult to get outcomes in a timely manner that people expect. And if they don't get those outcomes in the timely manner that they expect, they really get cheesed off in the political yeah. process and they say, well, yep. what's the point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to return just briefly to the to the social media piece. Um, it, what I didn't, what I forgot to ask you was, do, do you think um, the way you governed would be different to how you governed back then, given this rise of social media since you were Premier? Uh, I fear so, mm. yeah. I mean, you can't – it's very hard to ignore. Yeah. It's very hard to ignore. Now, to the extent that it might have impacted on on the big issues, um, I don't think it would have. But on a lot of day-to-day issues, I think it poss- possibly would have, yeah. Yeah, agreed. I, you know, I know it affects us. Even, even the conversations we have on this podcast – it affects some of the things that we talk about because of, you know, my role, you know, MD of busy and all that sort of thing. You have to sort of really think about what you post and how people construe it. And part of the issue is, you know, how do you, how do you get across a major government decision that is extremely complicated in 20 or 25 words? Yes. You can't. And, and even in terms of the electronic media, you know, premiers and prime ministers might do a press conference that goes for 35 or 40 minutes on the evening news even, it could be a 30-second grab. Yeah, yeah. And, and literally politicians have to train themselves to say what is in their minds, what's that grab going to be and how do I make the most of that grab? It's, it's, it's so unfortunate in many ways. And as, as sure as you've stuffed it up, you realise it's <laughs> I mean, but what, what social media has done is um, create the ultimate democracy where everyone has a say um, with limited or unlimited knowledge of a particular problem, and everyone's a NIMBY. Nobody wants it in their in their backyard, mm. um, and so it does inhibit growth for the greater good or development for the greater good. I mean, even the Athenians, you know, the the, the home of democracy, said, "Well, not everyone should have the vote. It's only those that are wise and highly educated and what have you." But so it's not it's not a bad thing. It's but it's inhibiting some growth. Mm. Um, so is the Chinese system the way to go? <laughs> well, it's interesting. There was that um, famous speech by Edmund Burke to the voters of Bristol, uh, whenever back in the eighteen thirties or whenever it was, and he said that when you elect someone to the, in this case it was the House of Commons, uh, they owe it to you to exercise their judgment in terms of what government of the day should or should not be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a, a variation on the theme that was, that was uh, Edmund Burke was regarded as one of the, uh, the great 
contributors to the development of Westminster, Westminster democracy as we now know it, and I think not long after that famous speech he managed to lose his seat. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think, <laughs> but there's a place for AI in this, I think, in judging what is for the greater good and what, what should be the root of, uh, you know, the crunching data. Well, we we, we just run people's views through AI and determine what's think the policy If they can be. manage investment decisions and, and healthcare interventions, they should be really running the country. I, I want to talk a bit more about this... Um, <laughs> Well, AI. <laughs> yeah. Scare. Even AI, those people in size, have you seen this? It's um, the chat GPT. Um, mm. they, they, they run some research where effectively it was able to sort of write a very nice poem about Biden, but had nothing it was able to write about Trump because it was based on um, what it effectively oh, reviews the internet. So it's, it's, yeah, so it's, it, it's naturally leaning towards the left, apparently. So uh, we even have to be really careful with development of AI in terms of its you know view of the world, you know. Mm. Yeah, I, I, and, and that brings me, um, I sort of mentioned Trump earlier on, um, and this, this is where we will get absolutely harassed on social media. To, to what extent do you think uh, the Trump experience um, affected polarisation of politics and, and continues to? Oh, I think massively. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, and, and it's something that, you know, I, I love America and I've spent a lot of time there, but it's something that, obviously happened under the American system, uh, but a lot more difficult for it to occur under the Westminster system yep. where effectively one person can totally control a political yeah. Which is party. So, so ironic that, isn't it? Because the American system is designed not to do that. You know, in, in Westminster, of course, um, we rely on sort of an unelected um, person maintaining sort of the balance. Yet I find it fascinating the presidential American system ended up with this situation. Well, you know, the, the American Revolution was all about getting away from absolute monarchy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the irony. Yeah, the irony of it all yeah. is, is, is quite, yeah. And, and, I mean, there are differences. And, and you know, you will, get the, you will get people having more extreme opinions on both the left and the right when they're disenfranchised, when they feel that they're mm. left out of the process. And, and that's the great danger. I mean... In, in Australia, we've been, by and large, pretty lucky. Uh, elections here are mostly won and lost in the middle. Yep. And if the Labor Party goes too far to the left, they get the boot. And if the, uh, the Liberal National Party goes too far to the right, they'll get the boot because, you know, Australia's a fairly egalitarian society. Mm. But in those, those other democracies where you, you have greater extremes there's always the risk of, of someone from the left or the right, uh, if you like, um, doing things that basically contribute to that enormous polarisation. Yeah, so I, we should probably explain that liberal, of course, in Australian context means conservative in yeah. most other um, Western democracies. Um, I was just going to say, I think there's a massive irony that um, this rise of the populist, is that the right yep. word, um, uh, like such as Trump and seen in some European countries is uh, seen as a bad thing. And I think there was that study in, um, in Africa where they showed people pictures of all the presidents throughout time uh, of the United States and they knew nothing about them, uh, but they picked the winner, I think it was 90% of the time, just on looking at the pictures of the two opposing oh, really? Democrats and, and, and Republicans. But the reason why people have gone for that is because of themselves, these mm. populist um, people, is because um, 
politicians are so harangued on social media that people, um, when, when politicians are in front of cameras and quoting, they're so straight-jacketed, they're so media-briefed that they can't say this or that and they have to be so middle-of-the-road and almost you know, bland in what they say. It actually sickens people. And that's, they, isn't that the appeal of Trump, though? Well, exactly, that's people, my point. Yeah, yeah they, because they're not like that, and yeah. they're going against it. But it's it's the people rabidly ripping apart if you say some anything out of that that then is leading to this polarization of well, we need somebody. It's just fresh that somebody's actually saying what they think and saying what they mean. And 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 um, Boris Johnson was was cast in that same. Um, you know, people said he's a populist um, leader, but he was a bit. But he's nowhere near no. um, where where we were with Trump. Um, so uh, yeah, I find it interesting. So it's we've created the same people that created the situation of politicians feeling straightjacketed in what they say and to some extent what they do, then rebel against that. Because they, they want these extreme people that are more outspoken and saying what they think because mm. they miss that. And the people they're looking at, um, the, the, the media-savvy uh, politicians, just seem boring and insincere and unauthentic. I think that's right. People will galvanise around a strong leader, mm. whether that leader be of the left or the right. There's no doubt about that. Mm. And Because and, and, what was fascinating, of course, was um, I think it was 2016 when Bernie Saunders, Sanders... Uh, got to the final two against Hillary, didn't he, in, in, in the democratic process, that his people that supported Sanders, many of them were known to jump to Trump because of that anti-establishment um, persona they both mm. had. When, of course, it's so counterintuitive, you think they would just go, okay, well, we'll support Clinton now. Um, but, but in fact, they went the anti-establishment path uh, because they are so people are so feeling disenfranchised with, you know, decision-making, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You said um, uh, we, we haven't really experienced it in, in the Westminster system, which, which uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, obviously Australia, the UK, New Zealand, Canada would all have that sort of similar sort of system. Do you think we are relatively safe from that sort of rise of, of a populist leader? I, I think the Westminster system provides, or the evolution of the Westminster system, because obviously all the old uh, British colonies that are now independent have yep. evolved and adopted variations to the theme. But the Westminster system in itself has protections that, in my view, the American Republic does not have. Mm. Uh, And it's a lot more difficult for uh, one person to basically have total control of a government under a Westminster system than it is under a Republican system. And that's not just in the US, if you look at anywhere uh, where there's a republic, um, there are lots of examples where uh, basically uh, democracy has been devalued. Yeah, and it's funny, I've heard an opinion. Um, when we've had those periods uh, in the UK, you had the Conservatives, you had the Liberal Democrats having to run together with, with Cameron and Clegg for a period. And in Australia, of course, um, did, did we have a minority government at one point? Or uh, Yes, we had uh, the uh, Gillard government governed with the support of a couple of independents. Gillard, Gillard, Rudd. That's it. And we had to rely on the Senate as well. And, and you hear people express the view um, that they liked the fact that politicians had to yeah. politicians had to negotiate effectively and, and do a lot more discussion around decision making than, than when they have you know the, the full control. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an int- interesting characteristic of Australian politics. Uh, people will vote differently in the Senate mm. than they will in the House because they don't want the government to have total control. 
It's they, fascinating. They, they, they want a break on government. And, and you find the same thing that when you get, say, a, a Labour government now federally, people then vote differently on a state basis because they don't like the idea of having a, the same federal and state-based governments. Yeah, often. People, people want like a sense, sense of balance, yeah. yeah. So, Rob, what I wanted to ask, though, on a, on a personal or sort of real basis, what was it like, having been in opposition, to suddenly walk through the door and sit down at the desk as Premier? Was, was it, wow, this is totally different? Um, or was there a, a system there that you just eased into and people showed you around and, 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 and you could sort of run it seamlessly? Well, I, I guess I was fortunate in that I had been in government before as a minister and then we went back into opposition and we had some years in opposition and, and then into government. But uh, yeah, you, you, you walk into the office and uh, the public servants give you the book and uh, the book will be the book of issues and problems and... Uh, you know, is, is it, sorry, is it literally that, a book of these are things we need fixed or something? Uh, or, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically, it's probably electronic these days, but it, but it was, um, okay, you're now the Premier, um, these are your entitlements, uh, uh, this is how you get a car, this is, this is how you <laughs> get to the office, um, you know, um, uh, these are your staff entitlements, uh, this is your department, and also uh, these, these are the issues confronting mm-hmm. the government that, are still in the in-tray uh, from the government that's just departed. Mm. And governments that are, think they're about to depart sometimes leave a lot of the big issues for the incoming <laughs> no, government. That's, a, that's like all of December. That's a 2023 problem. Like <laughs> that's, just, right, yeah. that's right, the, the in-tray. Yeah, that's, that's a next government problem. <laughs> what did you actually prefer, being in opposition or being in, in power? Because they've both got advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, uh, Certainly, being in government, and 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 the really good thing about government, I found, was that uh, a lot of the bigger issues took a while to fix, but you could come home to your electorate, and you know you'd have your electorate day, and people would come in with problems because they were being messed around by a government department, or someone hadn't got back to them, or you know they needed a, a school bus and the application had been waiting for ages or some road needed to be fixed. Gee, when you're a Premier, it was easy. (laughs) (laughs) Really? You know, so you you could really make a a lot of difference to a lot of the little issues that people would come to see you about. Now, when it came to a matter of broad government policy or you wanted to build a new freeway or you wanted to sort of put in place, you know, new laws... uh, Inevitably, that's a lot more complicated. Hmm. And, and it's actually been a, a subject, when, when you're part of a, a local electorate and your local MP becomes a premier, it's, there's, a, there's a, a sense of pride, but then you think, hang on a minute, now he's totally distracted by looking after the entire state. Who's going to look after my, my road and my, my bus route and that sort of thing? How, do, how does that get filled in? That's the, that's the trade-off because, you know, obviously... Uh, uh, a regular MP is in their electorate most of the time. Uh, once you become a minister or a, a leader of a government, uh, you're lucky to be there one day a week, mm. one day a fortnight sometimes. Uh, but when you are there, you, you can make a bigger difference than when you're a, a backbench MP. So it's, it's a trade-off. Yeah. I, th- I think most people understand that. Uh, and the important thing always in politics, I mean, the most successful politicians have really good staff. They have good people around them. 
and if they've got good people around them that can act on their behalf, keep them informed as to what they're doing and what the problems are, refer or defer to them as necessary, then you can manage it. Mm. And I was lucky. I, I had tremendous staff. Mm, fascinating. One of the things I've been talking about um, on the podcast, we, we spoke with um, Nikki Hudson, who was the, um, the, the hockey roo captain. Uh, she won you know, the Olympic gold in Sydney in 2000. We were talking about life after that amazing success. Um, you, you were Premier, the most powerful man in Queensland, um, which, of course, is the best, finest state in Australia. How, how, how was that transition, though? Because it's not like, you know, Nikki's, she reaches this high in the Olympics and for sports people, they reach this high and then they're kind of, they, they slowly sort of, you know, move away and they go and play lower levels and that sort of thing. But for yourself, you, you, it's, it's literally a case, you lose the election, you're no longer Premier. And of course, there's an expectation on whoever's leading any party, whether it's Prime Minister or Premier or whoever, to then step back. And it's a very sudden end to, to sort of, you know, the, the very top of your career. How did you handle that, Rob? And, and was, was that a, a challenging sort of transition process? All of a sudden, the phone stops ringing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, it has its upsides. I mean, <laughs> you, 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 can go and, you can go on more holidays and yep. you can go to the movies and, you know, you can uh, go to the shops without yep. having, you know, police protection and, yep. you know... Um, yeah, and, and I think you've, you, you've got to be realistic. I think if you go into politics, everyone has a use-by date. And when you're elected to government, you have X amount of goodwill that, that goes with being elected. You've got to use that goodwill on the fights that matter, not the fights that don't. Yeah. And, and sooner or later, you'll use up that goodwill and the time will come to leave the stage. Yeah. And uh, I think... You know, you've just got to accept that's the way it is. Do the best you can when you're there. Mm. And when you leave, for heaven's sake, don't keep telling those that follow you everything they're doing <laughs> wrong. No, no, Ray Ray, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Which is a, a particularly bad trait. It really in, is. In, in, in politics generally where, yep. where you know, look, if, if, if a new government does something and they criticise you or something that you've done, uh, as as premier or prime minister or president, then then obviously you've got a, a perfect right to defend your record and what mm. you did. But you know this continual sniping that we see sometimes yeah. uh, in in some jurisdictions is 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 disappointing. I mean, you know, fat lady sings, get off the stage. <laughs> And even more so, don't deny that you didn't lose the election as well. It would be yeah, the, the, other, yeah, the, other, yeah. the other thing. Um, <laughs> your, during your period as, as um, pri- uh, Premier and, and leading Queensland, um, you, you actually had to deal with the rise of what I would call a populist um, party. It was, it was, it was the, the rise of One Nation, which is still around today and has, has got itself um, very closely connected to this conspiracy theory, anti-vaccine uh, sort of mob. Um, how, how challenging was that to, to manage? Because that was a very new thing, I assume. We hadn't probably seen that, you know, since the 1930s um, type, you know, party coming along. We, we, that was a very different challenge for you as Premier. How, how did you go about sort of thinking through responding to the growth of that? Look, it was, it was very difficult uh, and there were a range of issues at the time and we, we're talking late 1990s that uh, contributed to the rise of, of One Nation, and I think it's fair to say that as the years have gone on, One Nation has moderated. Yeah, agreed. Uh, it's it's nowhere near as extreme mm. uh, as 
it was when it started. It's now moved to being a more mainstream political party, if of the right. But having said that, uh, there were a range of issues. Uh, there was the, the native title issue that was very difficult for governments to deal with, uh, decisions of the High Court of Australia. Uh, there was national competition policy, uh, which was economic rationalism in uppercase letters mm. uh, that was really starting to hurt a lot of people, which was being implemented at a federal level and the states couldn't do much about it. There was deregulation of a number of industries that... Mm. Uh, including uh, industries like like daring, uh, where people were, were going to the wall because uh, of decisions that governments took or had been forced to take. So sorry to interrupt you there, Rob, but also I suppose guns would have been a big part of this um, this this era too, given what happened in in Tasmania. Yeah, gun guns were uh, an enormous factor in the growth of, of one nation. Yep. Uh, in Queensland, as a result of the agreement by my government, the other state governments and the, the Commonwealth government under the leadership of John Howard to bring in uh, stricter gun control legislation at a national level, to bring in a gun buyback program and uh, to make sure that if people were uh, going to acquire certain types of weapons that they were appropriately checked and mm. licensed. Uh, at the end of the day, if you were a farmer, um, unless you had an AK-47, <laughs> it, it wasn't going to make a lot of difference. Mm. Uh, but uh, the more extreme elements really fed off it uh, and at the election that occurred, uh, One Nation took roughly the same number of seats off both the LNP uh, as they did the Labor Party. Wow. I, think they, I think they took seven seats, I think, from memory, uh, off the uh, National Liberal Party and they took six seats off Labor. Uh, so it was, um, you know, something that was uh, far greater than expected. Mm. But having said that, it was a good example of, you know, the time comes in politics where an issue is of such consequence uh, that you've got to take a stand. And, and you know, we, we knew it was incredibly unpopular uh, in the bush uh, we and then, so I'm just going to add for people sort of watching overseas. The National Party is, of course, the party of the bush. It's, it's the party of, of country Australia it used to yeah, be called the yeah, Country yeah, Party. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, the National Party lost uh, close to a third of its membership mm. was not not renewed. That's an incredibly brave decision, Rob, to make for you to support that. Well, it was the right decision, um, and I, I, I guess you know you, you come to the view: well, are you seat warming or are you there to make a difference? And mm. and people still today and and. People like John Howard, who I saw the other week, who's a sprightly 83, yep. um, you know, made the point, um, you know, it, it was very significant. Uh, Australia could have gone the way of the US in terms of mass shootings yep. and, uh, and gun issues and, and gun control, uh, where we didn't. We decided to take a different path in, in the national interest and it's... Heaven knows how many lives it saved in Australia. So the, let's just review that. So due to um, a mass shooting in Tasmania, um, legislation was brought in uh, for gun control. And how many mass shootings have been in the last two decades since that was? Oh, hardly any. I, mean, I, I don't know if we've had I one. I don't think yeah, we've had okay. one. There's, so, been, there's been, sorry, there, there was the, the incident uh, uh, out on the Western Downs in, in, in Queensland just recently where yeah. police were ambushed yeah. by uh, three uh, right-wing extremists, but that was a, a concerted, that's been labelled a 
effectively a domestic terrorist attack on police. Yep. But in terms of mass shootings of civilians, um, I don't think there's been... And that's been simply been by controlling yeah. guns, so that those yeah. farmers that, that still need it have... They can still do it, yeah. So yep. why couldn't this be implemented in the United States? Well, that's a matter, you know, for... Uh, the US to, to deal with. <laughs> I know that uh, successive US governments have, have tried even the most basic measures such as checking if anyone has a mental health record yeah. uh, before they can be issued with not just an ordinary gun but a gun that can do a fair bit of damage mm. and there are parts in the US where they can't even get that through. So I guess it's one of those issues where you know, Australia and America in many respects are, are quite similar and in some respects we're quite different. Yep. And gun control is one of those areas where, thankfully, uh, we are quite different to the US. Yeah, and, and Canada the same as us. You know, they literally the other day just went, you know what, we're banning handguns, and that was a, that was a left-wing government. You know, and, for, for me that's probably, in my mind, Rob, yourself and John Howard. I'm very passionate about gun control. So for me, your time in power and also John Howard's, for me it's probably the, the greatest thing you guys did. Did you regard it as that, or is there something else you have in mind that you think, you know, that was my greatest achievement? I think in in terms of uh, the long term well being of society, mm. uh, that that was John Howard's lasting legacy, and I was fortunate to have been able to play a part, play mm. a part in it as a, a state premier that uh, supported what he was doing and could put through uh, the necessary legislation at state level to complement the federal yeah. legislation. Uh, and congratulations, man. I know it's, it was a huge thing and, and you probably don't get enough credit for, for literally the lives that have been saved. And, and I, I get very passionate about the America thing, both in terms of healthcare and, and gun control. That, um, it doesn't compute in my brain as to why they don't do anything about it and why they keep letting children die in schools, you know. And, um, you know, it was, it was such a huge step, which, which probably brings us back to polarisation one more time. We'll, we'll sort of round things out, this conversation with that. Um, there's some fascinating statistics around around this. Uh, that, that uh, in in America, that you when um, when they have Thanksgiving, if you invite uh, somebody with a different opposing view to your political view to your Thanksgiving dinner, on average, it's nearly an hour shorter than a Thanksgiving giving dinner, <laughs> by, because they just go, you know what, this is too hard. In Australia, you have the same thing, you know, it's that bloke at the barbecue that decides, you know what, you're left wing, I want to talk about the right, you're right wing, I want to talk about the left. Well, what do we do, mate? Um, what can we do? We, we have this cognitive dissonance thing, Darren, which makes it so hard to convince people of an opposing view to actually listen to your view or, or come around. It's very hard to make people change their minds. What do we do, um, Rob, to, to ensure that we do have proper debate and discussions over key issues and we actually do listen to each other? I think it's a matter of keeping, keeping the discussion as civil as you possibly can and sometimes you've just got to agree to disagree yep. uh, but do it in the best possible Manner and and you know one of the interesting things about politics is, you know, particularly in the the Westminster system, people look at our question time, which doesn't exist in the US, but where, you know, the the prime minister or the premier and the ministers all have to answer questions, nice rigged questions from the government and hostile questions from the opposition. Uh, <laughs> but but that's that's the theatre of parliament. But if if you sat in the chamber for the 12 or 14 hours a day that Parliament might sit, what is surprising is how much both sides of politics agree. Uh, so, you know, question time is a place of conflict, but very often Parliament itself, uh, it does happen, uh, you know, uh, opposition amendments will be accepted by the government yeah. to, to legislation. So, you know, it's, it's not 
quite as dire as the public perception because people see Parliament as, as question time where, uh, you know, the government and the opposition are throwing insults <laughs> across the chamber to one another. As Paul Keating said, well, it's still better than throwing grenades across the street, yeah. which is what happens in some countries. Yeah. Did you have friendships on either side of politics? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some of the best friends you find really? are, are on the other side. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and that's, you know, I mean, very often... The case in in Parliament, even after question time, you know, where you've been basically done over <laughs> by, by the opposition, um, you know, they'll come around later and say, "Well, got you there, didn't we?" And yeah, said, yeah okay. well, we better go and have a drink. You know, you know, yeah. look, that's the theatre of the place. Yeah, but but the, most of the work of Parliament is done during the committee stages and 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 during debate on legislation, and mostly, most of the time governments and oppositions agree. I find it fascinating looking at um, leadership throughout history and leaders that um, people want strong, powerful, confident leaders. People like to have that security of being led by somebody. But invariably those leaders, be it um, Churchill or whomever, um, flip and do 180s and they're psychologically flexible as well and people still follow them through that. Um, So it goes back to a point you were making before about... At the, that being strong, but also being um, open-minded and listening. And I think that people individually can learn about that. You mentioned cognitive dissonance is where you have a belief, um, but your actions are different. You know, you might might think, oh, it's really cruel to, to kill animals, um, but you still go out and eat meat. Um, so it, it, people have these, um, we act differently to the way we think, and we think differently to the way we act sometimes. And it's, it's hard to balance that and not be influenced by that, particularly mm. as a politician. Rob, we're probably going to wrap this up in a minute, and we, we haven't really got to conspiracy theories and, and polarisation. We might ask you if you can come back one day and, and have another chat, if that's okay, mate. Be delighted, Opera. yeah. Thank you so much for the day. We always end these podcasts, um, you know, it's, it's about um, what makes us human, uh, how to fudge being human. We always end these podcasts asking our guests, um, uh, what human behaviour do you find most annoying? <laughs> <laughs> Stupid um, questions from podcast people. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I think probably, and it can happen when you're driving or it can happen in a lift or it can happen in the street, if you display good manners, say you're driving down the road and there's a car trying to merge yep. and you really don't have to give way but you slow down a bit so they can, uh, if they don't sort of say thank yeah. you or wave, you know, it's just, it's just if people don't say thanks yep. when you've done something for them, um, that that really, really annoys me. Yeah. I used to get really cranky when you hold the door for someone; they just walk through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> same thing. Same thing. I'm a doorman. Don't even yeah. tip you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't <laughs> tip. <laughs> Chase after my flat cap. Yeah. But yeah. actually, it's something you, you mentioned there. I noticed um, the last couple of months in the US, I've spent there that they have these four-way junctions are really commonplace that you don't have in. They're insane. Put a roundabout. They are. But what you notice is it, it instills. It conditions you to be really polite. And people stop, and the idea is is the fir- first person that arrived there goes. And, and you might get a hoon, as we call him in Australia, just screech up in their Mustang, 
but then they go, oh, after you. Like, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I think American society yeah. is, is generally really polite. And we yeah. noticed it even in the queues in Disneyland, um, which were orderly, and people go, oh, terribly sorry, after you. And the, the Americans were probably the politest people I've, I've come across, and I think it's conditioned by this sort of thing, stopping at junctions and saying, oh, after you, thank you, that sort of thing. And they're really good at that. Yeah. So, so yeah. you'd like yeah. it. You, yeah. you should just hang around in junctions in the United States. Okay, I might, I might do <laughs> that. Please, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it, mate. Pleasure. And if you enjoyed what we're talking about, make sure you subscribe on YouTube uh, and also connect with us in our Facebook group, LinkedIn and TikTok. Uh, and uh, we're out every mo- every Tuesday morning, 7 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Thank you. And thank you, Darren, as always. As always, too. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Oi, budge.